like to welcome you to this new episode of D-Talk, the podcast series of the International Diabetes Federation. I'm your host, Felissa DeRose. In this episode, we'll be talking about the impact of diabetes complications and the links between COVID-19 and diabetes. I'm delighted to welcome our guest today, Professor Joan Felipe Boponzo. He is currently an assistant professor of public health in the medical faculty of New University of Lisbon and has been the consultant of endocrinology at the Portuguese Diabetes Association since 2006. Professor Raposo is also the program chair for the upcoming IDF Virtual Congress 2021 this year in December. Professor Raposo, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's really my pleasure to be here, and thank you so much for inviting me to be part of this series of podcasts. Thank you, Felipe. You are welcome. So I'm going to ask you some general questions about COVID-19 and diabetes, and I'm looking forward to today's wonderful discussion. To begin, I want to talk about IDF is dedicating its virtual Congress to the impact of diabetes complications. Can you tell us why it's important to tackle the short and long-term health effects of diabetes? That's the most important question on diabetes, because I think for the societies, most of the people, most of the people without diabetes don't realize the importance of diabetes and the possible burden of diabetes that comes through the burden of the complications. For most people in the community, they still think about diabetes as not an important disease related to sugar in your blood, and sugar is always considered something nice and sweet. And so it's difficult for us and difficult for people with diabetes. It's difficult for for the healthcare professionals that work with people with diabetes to, to create this awareness of the diabetes complications. And really... Diabetes is a serious disease because it can create complications. And those are nowadays, all around the world, part of the global burden of disease associated to diabetes. And when they're speaking about this, we are speaking about retinopathy, so causing blindness. We are speaking about nephropathy that can lead to chronic kidney disease, renal failure, the need of hemodialysis or renal transplant. We are speaking about neuropathy and... Uh, uh, foot ulcers and amputations, but we are speaking about some more common diseases as heart attacks and strokes, and diabetes is related with uh, in a huge proportion of those complications. And those are what to call in the classical chronic conditions, and nowadays we are realizing that diabetes is more implicated even with liver, with uh, uh, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease that was something that was not so uh, important or known a couple of years ago and and as you have mentioned Felicia it's also about acute complications and acute complications and usually we are speaking about hypoglycemias or hyperglycemic crisis are really also quite relevant with a huge impact on the quality of life 
of people with diabetes and causing also a possible burden on, on the economical uh, health system because uh, it leads people to emergency rooms uh, or to serious accidents. And so it's very important to have this focus on diabetes complications. And I think it was quite a, a fantastic idea of, of the International Diabetes Federation to have created these congresses, these meetings only on diabetes complications. And only is a short term for a huge uh, amount of information that's possible to deal and uh, to tackle in this Congress. Well, thank you so much for that. So much information. Like, as a person who's living with diabetes, I feel like a lot of time it's silent. Like when I hear long term complications, I'm like, well, how much is long term? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so yeah. I'd be interested in knowing. <clears throat> What could people do today, like one thing that they could do today that could help kind of prevent some of those long-term complications? Well, that's also, as it was expected, a fantastic question because it's, it's easy to make it, but it's, uh, the, the, my answer has to, to, to deal with two dimensions. The science dimension, while still we don't know exactly the same information about every complication, but we know that uh, having your diabetes well controlled uh, with normal or near normal levels of blood sugar, having your blood pressure control, have your lipids control, do regular screening of those complications really can prevent or in some cases delaying the, these complications. But on the other side, it's, it's still difficult to to explain and to change the behavior of many people living with diabetes, because as you mentioned, this long-term complication just means it's something in your future. And it really depends a little bit of your personality, the way you deal with that concept of long-term. Long-term can mean, and it means for most people, that's something that can happen in a long-time <laughs> scenario. And so it's really, I. I I'm not obliged to change anything today about the possibility in a, in a long-term future. Right. And so when we try to use that, and it's something that the healthcare professionals, we are quite biased to do that, threatening people living with diabetes about complications, saying, if you don't do the right things now, you can be blind in 10 years or 15 years. And that's something that it seems logical to do these kind of threats, but it doesn't, it, it's proven that it's not changing or not leading to changing your behavior. Yeah. You have to, to, that's why education of people living with diabetes is starting to discuss the motivation to be well compensated today uh, and try to, to, to find the reason to have your diabetes well compensated today. And of course, we know that the benefit is something that will come in the future. But if we demonstrate it's possible to live today in a better quality of life, preserving your quality of life or improving your quality of life, for, for certain we'll be more successful than just threatening with complications. And that's why from one side, healthcare professionals, the diabetes educators, diabetes, lay people working with uh, people living with diabetes, they all should be trained in these competences, in these skills of finding the motivation and finding the right way to, to lead people to having their diabetes better compensated with all the other risk factors. From the healthcare professionals, we still need 
to take a little bit of the what we call the glucose centric approach. So just focusing on the glucose levels, because we know now and we have been knowing that for many years that the complications associated to diabetes, they are really connected to also to blood pressure, to your lipid levels, if you smoke or not smoke. Uh, and so all those factors are important to be corrected. And of course, we, need, we still need a lot of research on knowing a little bit more on the what we call the natural history of those complications. Because we all know, and people living with diabetes seldom t tell me that on consultations. Well, I know some people that are, they don't care nothing about diabetes and they don't have any kind of complication. And me, I have my diabetes perfect and now someone has tell, been telling me that I have a slight degree of retinopathy or nephropathy. It seems a little bit unfair. And of course, it's unfair, but uh, life is not always fair, as we all know. But still, that reflects that we still don't have the capacity, from the scientific point of view, to know exactly why some people are more, more prone to complications or to specific complications. Well, I can say this, Dr. Raposo, you are my hero, and that's just the first <laughs> real question I've asked, because when you said scare tactics do not work, and we need to find like the key to the motivation. I'm like, yes, because when I was diagnosed, I got a pamphlet of scare tactics and I was like, well, why would I manage diabetes if I'm doomed to have an amputation and end up blind, right? So that yeah. doesn't work. Um, and getting Yeah, but it's, it's used all around the world, still used all around the world. I, I've been lucky because I started to work at the Portuguese Diabetes Association 20 years ago or something like that. And, and the, the role of this association, it was also to educate people. So when it was founded 95 years ago, the, the, the founder said it's more important for a doctor to be the educator. And the educator was to put the people with diabetes in charge with a, a strong focus on motivation. Because otherwise you will not have any kind of success. We are keeping giving leaflets with information about diabetes and people living with diabetes they know all the information. Most of the people know, they know all about the importance of the physical activity, about uh, healthy foods, about uh, giving your blood sugar control. But still, people have to live their own lives as expected. And for that, they have to some squeeze the diabetes there without interfering with their perception of the quality of life with their relation with the whole community, with the family, with the co-workers. And that's something that we are still not trained as healthcare providers to have that analysis. Uh, and, and I think that will be the, the, the only way to have more success on, on the control of diabetes, apart of the other things we have been mentioning, but that's fundamental. I agree. Um, and in talking about like exercising, I used to do a lot of 5K races and then COVID happened. So <laughs> my next question for you is like COVID-19 has completely changed really the world over the past 18 months. And mm -hmm. people with diabetes have been disproportionately affected by the impact and the seriousness of the virus. Can you describe what we know so far about the links between COVID-19 and diabetes? excuse me, and diabetes, some of the ways we can address this? Yeah, so 
if we don't know so much still about the diabetes complication, we still we we know less about the COVID and diabetes. But from the first moment, we knew about the strong relation about COVID nineteen and 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 diabetes, specifically not about the the risk of being infected with COVID. That's the same with all with all the population, but the risk of having serious conditions of COVID-19 infection. Uh, and that there are several possible explanations about that relation, because people with diabetes, specifically people with a not so well compensated diabetes, they are what we call in, in medicine in a pro-inflammatory state. So meaning that your body is in a low uh, degree of inflammation. And we know that the that degree of inflammation is associated with less capacity to fight infections. Uh, and so it was known that relation with other infections. And during a pandemic, that was more clear for most of the people, more evident for all the people. And, and that was the first step to know that strong association between diabetes or diabetes not so well compensated with the serious conditions of COVID-19. But then we knew, and, that, uh, and that's the difficult part of epidemiology, these, the numbers on, on health, because we knew that it was also about more elderly people with diabetes, mm -hmm. and, and age by itself was a condition as we have been, unfortunately, been knowing about this, the mortality associated with COVID. Uh, it's quite strongly associated with age, but also with obesity, and we know that diabetes is also associated with obesity. And so people with diabetes, usually also they don't have only diabetes, depending if you have type 1 or type 2, considering your age. And so it's diabetes by itself could be a risk factor, and is certainly a risk factor for those serious conditions of COVID. But it's also considering all the other diseases that cohabit in a person, they will lead to more serious forms of COVID. But then, as you have mentioned, Alisa, it's also about what happened with people without diabetes not getting infected, but during the pandemic, what happened to them? Because we knew all around the world that people, most of them were in lockdown situation, so people stayed at home. And that means a different pattern of physical activity, a different pattern, pattern of food habits, different access to healthcare, uh, in general, so less screening of complications, less uh, blood uh, results, uh, and so we are still probably will be knowing in the near future what was real the impact of, of COVID-19 on people living with diabetes, not only on the infected ones, but largely on the population that did, was not infected, but had to change a lot in their lives. And we are we are getting to know that that impact, because all around the world there were reports saying that people didn't have their feet checked. So probably the number of amputations will rise. People didn't have the eye screen, and usually that's a yearly exam of your eye. So if during a year or more than a year you didn't have your your eyes checked, probably a part of those people will have a more serious condition than before. Uh, so it's a huge impact, but also we are not used to live in a pandemic probably, 
the best way is to learn, and I think we have learned a lot of, on, on, on changing also with the teleconsultations, with phone calls, with, with the access to technology to share information. And I hope really that we'll be changing also the healthcare pattern for the future with the good things that we at least we have learned from a pandemic. Even if we all agree it was better not to have to have the pandemic, but since it okay. happened, <laughs> let's go and, and learn something from the from it. Yeah, I, I agree. I've enjoyed having the the telecommunication virtual conferences with my with my doctors. Um, and in terms of like COVID-19 and diabetes, I know I have some friends who have diabetes and they are seeing the messages that people with diabetes are experiencing complications. And so they don't want to go outside for any reason. And then there are others that are like, well, you know, I'm okay. And, and thinking about how I manage, like for people who have diabetes, should they think about how they move throughout the world with COVID or should they move like everyone else? Like what should a person do extra, if anything, if they have diabetes right now in the midst of COVID? I, I think we have, it really depends on which country you live uh, and the access to healthcare, or if you are planning to travel, where to you are planning to travel. Uh, I think, and we have tried to do that also during since the last 18 months, the best advice is also to have your diabetes well compensated, in good control, because that's the most important thing, even if you get infected, not to have an, an increased risk of uh, any kind of serious COVID-19 uh, uh, disease. But uh, a part of that, we are we pushed really hard, uh, at least in, in my country, to, in Portugal, to to have people vaccinated. So we we pushed a lot uh, that at least all people with diabetes from the start would be a priority group for having the vaccination, considering that increased risk, and not, and 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 trying not to differentiate between good control and bad control because it was like putting a label or those people with poor control they need a vaccination and the other ones not and it could also lead to people having a poor control just to have, to, to have access to vaccination and so we try to to simplify the things and, and put as a general indication for people with diabetes to have vaccination and so i think we are depending again on which region of the world you are living and are planning to travel but I'm hopeful that we'll be with the, the vaccination process with, okay. with a, not such a, a, a strings on the healthcare process in the hospitals and everything. I think we'll be having people with diabetes leaving as all the other people with this new infection and we'll, be, we'll have to learn to live with it also as we have been living for with many other infections for the last centuries or millennium. Okay, thank you for that. Um, <clears throat> this year, the global diabetes community is marking the centennial discovery of insulin, like 100 years, which there'll be a special focus at the IDF Virtual Congress in December. In the 10 years that I've had diabetes, I've noticed some advancements that have taken place. 
So over the 100 years, can you describe some of the latest advances that have happened to help people with diabetes manage their condition? Sure, as you and you said, your personal experience that think, that I think it's quite relevant because it's what we have been trying to do in science and 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 with all the stakeholders involved in this process of care. But for sure, still the the the, the most important event was really the insulin. I think it's still uh, the, the the discovery or the the or, or, or trying to find. The discovering of the possibility to use insulin, it really saved life and still saving lives. Mm -hmm. And what have been happening during those 100 years, while it's quite relevant for people living with diabetes, and you said that you have been living with diabetes for the last 10 years, and we have seen still an evolution of that. Yeah. But uh, when we try to, to show to people saying, okay, living with diabetes now, it's much better than it was 60 years ago, it's not so important for people who have been just diagnosed, uh, as we have started to say, diabetes is always, it always causes an impact on having diabetes and say, trying to say something like that. Now it's, it's much easier to live with diabetes than it was before. Either you have been living with diabetes and then you can measure that advance, or if you have having the impact nowadays, even if you say, now you can, instead of pricking your finger, you have sensors to use it. Okay, but even for people that didn't have sensors before because they were not diagnosed with diabetes, living with the sensor is still difficult. Saying well, to people with type 1 diabetes, now you have insulin pumps, but at the start, people had to inject themselves with glass syringes and large needles, and that was their life. Still, it's difficult, or it may be difficult for people living with an insulin pump because there was something that they they didn't they didn't feel the need to use that. So it's so I think the the one hundred years, it's it's a, what we call here a round number. So it's a, a milestone important for diabetes, but I think we have to be uh, asking more from the society, from the scientists, from the industry that still after those 10 decades, we are still having the need to inject insulin. So it's, it's we have technology has advanced a lot, but still we are far from automation. We are far from having uh, easier ways to, to, to deliver insulin. We're still not tackling the right way type two diabetes. So I think this is a, quite an important moment to make this kind of balance between what have be, has been achieved and a lot was achieved, but still we need a lot of different stuff to increase uh, and to, to, to offer better uh, treatment for people living with diabetes, type 1, type 2, gestational diabetes, rare forms of diabetes. So diabetes, it's, it's quite a huge world of uncertainty today. And we, I'm a doctor, and we as a scientist, and we as a, as a, as a world of people living or, or not living with diabetes, should push this, mov to, this movement to have better results in diabetes and not being just happy what has been achieved up to now. We have to recognize the importance of, of what is achieved, but still we don't have, we cannot offer the cure for diabetes. Right. It's something terrible for 
when I I, uh, I do the consultation for someone that's just been diagnosed and say, okay, I cannot offer you to cure, but we can control. And control is not something that people are aiming to. to when they have the, di the diagnosis of a disease, of course, getting the control is better than nothing. But if I say, okay, we are going to start a new treatment to achieve the cure. You'll have to do this to achieve the cure. And we, in, the, in this healthcare world, we have to achieve that. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> like, I could give you a round of applause. I'm telling you, just thinking about injecting insulin. Like, when I first started, you know, 10 years ago, the needles were really big. Now they're smaller. And I'm like, thank God for, you know, smaller needles. But like you said, like, getting to the point where you wouldn't even have to inject. That yeah, would that's, be amazing. Of course. <laughs> it seems logical, but still, so this, this increase in, in the development of, of therapies, of technology, uh, I think still needs a lot of the input of people living with diabetes also in this process. That's something that also we try to promote at IDF and through the patient associations to include the patients in this early process of development of these things. Because really the needs of people living with diabetes and they are different so you if you get two people with living with diabetes together they'll have different needs so the first one would say that this is quite important for me and the other one is not and um, right. but the only way to have success on this is to to do this kind of group analysis to try to find common needs specific needs but from the start, it's not like having a new app on diabetes and you for sure know, I don't know, thousands of different apps for diabetes. And most of them, either they were creating for people living with diabetes, considering their own needs, and so they are not the needs for other people, or sometimes they were created for a fantastic group of engineers, informatics, or, or people working in the industry, or, and and trying to forecast the needs of people living with diabetes and then completely missing the relevance of, of what they, they were doing. And with that, we are wasting resources. And I think we should do this kind of, of working together from yeah. the, an early start. Uh, and we should develop this, this new way of working. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that's so important. I remember going to uh, a diabetes conference. I shall not name any names. <laughs> it was completely medical professionals, no one who was living with diabetes. And I felt really weird as a person with diabetes. Like they're talking about me, but I'm not on the stage. And when I went to IDF, it was different, like you said, like including, like I'm in Blue Circle Voices. When I got the invitation, I was like, yes, I would love to like yeah. be a part because it's so important, that collaboration, like you said. Yeah, society now is changing. I think now it's with all those efforts, like you said about IDF, because IDF was one of the only Congress where people with diabetes, living without diabetes, non-healthcare profession would attend because most of the other countries um, have laws, specific laws, saying that if you have a kind of medical congress, people, non-healthcare professionals, wouldn't be able to even go to that physical space there. They are not able to attend. But now I think 
there's this kind of thing. A developed world means having the people involved, sharing information, sharing the responsibility. Uh, and as you mentioned, Felicia, it's 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 the only way to do it. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Um, the next question is: Over 460 million people are currently living with diabetes, and the new edition of the IDF Diabetes Atlas, which will be launched during the IDF Virtual Congress this December, is likely to show a further rise in that number. What are some of the ways that we can reduce the impact that diabetes is currently having on individuals and societies? Mm -hmm. That's the several million dollar question. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, well, again, we know the, the technical answer for that is saying, okay, we can try that addressing prevention, diabetes prevention. Mm -hmm. And for diabetes prevention, either we can consider type 1 diabetes, because we know that, that type 1 diabetes is also increasing in most of the countries, while the numbers are, the absolute numbers are quite low compared with the, 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 the pandemic of type 2, mm -hmm. but, but still we don't know exactly, or even the slightest idea, how to prevent type 1 diabetes, to be honest. And and for that, so we don't have a specific prevention for type 1 diabetes. For type 2 prevention, it's quite a different story. It, we, we know that it's possible to prevent type 2 diabetes or at least to delay significantly the, the, the type 2 diabetes uh, diagnosed if people change their way of life, if people combat obesity or overweight, being overweight. And for that, we, we, we all know that they should do more exercise and we all know that they should do an healthy diet and, and that's the, the two things that have been demonstrated for, I don't know, for more than 30 years now, that they really work. So that's not the, there, it's not a problem of knowledge, it's how to implement that. And two or three different approaches can be done. Either you can blame people individually saying, okay, it's your fault. You should, you should have done a healthy diet. You should have been doing more exercise. Otherwise, you will be having type 2 diabetes in a couple of years. And then with that, you are just putting the sole responsibility on the people living, having the risk to, to have diabetes. And that, it can work for a very limited number of people. Most people would feel that as a threat, and, and then they would start enjoying their life eating now because I'll have diabetes in the future and then I will have some limitations of what I can eat. And so that approach usually doesn't work. Then we'll have a little bit more of the public health perspective. So it's either addressing general population or just addressing what we call the high risk population. Okay. If you want to address the general population, you really have to, to consider diabetes as a kind of societal change challenges. So it, it means that it's our responsibility as a society, as a country, as a region, as a city, as a family, as right. a community of workers to have a better environment, making easier for people not, not having those non-healthy behaviors. So if you have uh, a good network of public transportation, you don't, 
people would go with public transportation instead of having their cars. Yeah. If uh, children can go to schools by walking or biking, we'll do diabetes prevention, even if you're not speaking about diabetes prevention. Mm -hmm. So, and as that, you are not trying to push people to individually change their behavior, but you are changing the society and as that, preventing diabetes and preventing other non-communicable diseases. So we are preventing cardiovascular diseases. You are preventing some kinds of cancers. So it's that kind of approach that we really should push. And that's a lot of on the health policies. And so we should push politicians to be able to change their way of thinking and putting a, a, a focus on these kind of prevention measures in opposite, just offering healthcare uh, uh, treatments for people already having the disease or even having already the diabetes complication. Of course, we need those treatments. We need those people well taken care. And for that, we have to be demanding this, uh, all the new treatments, all the technology. But we also know that all those are quite expensive. Right. Uh, and for that, if you want to have those treatments available for people living with diabetes, we should have part of the money uh, applied to diabetes prevention, applied to NCDs prevention. And for that, we have to have effective measures because up to now, as we have said for in the beginning, we are just giving leaflets or some public campaigns about uh, a healthy food. And even if they work, they should work in corporations at the same time as other measurements. The taxes on sugary beverage, the taxes on non-healthy fats, uh, uh, foods, they, they are important. They give a political message for the community also, but by themselves, they don't work. So that's kind of the, the health in all policies, the diabetes prevention in all policies that we should demand. I I like it. I'm going to share a story with you. You know, like they tell you healthy eating. I had no real idea of what like healthy eating was. But at some point I decided that I wanted to reduce fast food. Mm -hmm. And I moved to a new city and the closest fast food restaurant was like out of the way from my house. <laughs> and I realized I hadn't eaten. I hadn't eaten fast food in like eight months. Yeah. And I was like, wow, just because of the way the city was designed, yeah. it didn't make it easy to get fast food. So it, it really works. It's quite a good story. I, I, about physical activity, I also can give an example of my city here, Lisbon. I don't know if you know Lisbon, or, but Lisbon, it's a very hilly town. So it's, it's up and down all, all the time. So when we're speaking about having bikes in Lisbon, Everyone say it's a crazy idea for having bikes in Lisbon because it's impossible to to all this thing. But then the, the municipality here, the local government, decided to implement just uh, pathways, the bike pathways specific for, for bikes all around the city. And now you can see, I don't know, thousands of people oh. riding bikes all in, in the middle, going up and down. And now it's with bikes, we have even they can have a kind of electric uh, easy bike to, to to be more easy, but then we are starting to demonstrate it's possible to change in a natural way, as you have been saying. If if I have 
an easier access to healthy food and to not so healthy food, if I have an easier access to some measures that it make me easier to walk, to bike, then I don't have to think about my risk of diabetes. Exactly. It would become natural to live in that kind of environment. Yeah. And that's the solution. Because otherwise, and that's another risk on our society, we are going to put the pre-diabetes, the people at risk of diabetes, almost as if they were sick, as if they were already have an illness. And now the scientific world is also discussing about the introduction of, of the drugs for diabetes. Why not using it in pre-diabetes? And then it's again just putting the disease a little bit earlier, but actually we are taking the taking out the opportunity to change our society for a better world. And so we are all responsible to change our society. And that's, I think, one of the strongest message on diabetes prevention. Oh, okay. And to answer your question, I have not been to Lisbon, but I know that the next IDF is scheduled to be there. So we will be much welcomed here. And I think we'll enjoy Lisbon, the city and the healthy food also. Oh, uh, no. Thanks. And this way of living here in the south of Europe. <laughs> um, I've been enjoying this conversation so much. We're coming to an end, but I have one last question for you. You have a long-standing working relationship with the Portuguese Diabetes Association, the world's oldest diabetes association, and a national member of IDF. Can you tell us how the association supports people with diabetes in your country? Yeah, for sure. So, as you have mentioned, that's the oldest diabetes association in the world. So, it was founded in 1926, shortly after the introduction of insulin treatment in the world. And, and the, our history from the start, it was something. There was a Portuguese doctor, it was Dr. Roma. He was in the States at the time of the introduction of insulin. He was studying different things there, but then he, he, he understood the importance of insulin as one of the first miracle treatments in medicine. And so when he returned to Portugal, he changed his interest. He was, he was much interested in psychiatry, but then he changed to diabetes. And, it, it's, and he realized also, and it was quite evident, that insulin was so expensive that poor people living with diabetes wouldn't survive, wouldn't have access to insulin. So the, the original name of the Portuguese Diabetes Association was the Association for the Protection of Poor People Living with Diabetes. That's the original name. So, and the main goal of the association was to provide insulin for free for the poor people living with diabetes. But at that time, Dr. Roma understood that it was the the insulin treatment changed the kind of health paradigm that was putting people living with the disease in charge of their treatment. And for that, he started all what we call now the patient therapeutic education uh, of people living with diabetes. So he started at that time group lessons. He, start, he, he, he decided to have uh, what he, it was called the dietary kitchen. So there was a real kitchen where people have to make their choices of foods and, and learn how to cook in the, in the best way. And so it was quite a different way of approaching the, the disease model, the acute care model. So, and, and that was quite relevant at that time. So it was 
the patient association according to the patient needs. Uh, and then during those nine decades, 95 uh, years of existence, it's quite a different model of association. Okay. It's a patient association. It creates awareness for the community. It, it fights for the rights of people with, living with diabetes. Uh, but it's also a large outpatient clinic for diabetes. And the idea of having this outpatient clinic for diabetes is to define the standard of care for people with li for diabetes all around the country. So saying to all the other healthcare providers that they should do what we do here. Um, the multidisciplinary approach, the integrated care, all these still new concepts, they were they have been implemented here for many years, for many different years. And so uh, and it's our responsibility also to, to address the needs of people. Just an example, during COVID, we felt that people could be afraid of being lonely for being at home. So okay. we proactively uh, decided to call every people in our list saying, OK, even if you don't have an appointment, but just to note that we are here, do we have specific needs? And people realized that was quite important. So because uh, someone was caring for them in a proactive way uh, and as that, they felt more confident to, to, to fight the pandemic, even if the, without COVID-19. So providing all the educational materials, trying to fight for having the best access to technology, to the new drugs here, trying to implement research, the knowledge, as we have been mentioned, it's quite important. And yeah. so we have prizes for research, trying to work together with the universities to, to, to know more about the disease, to know more about complications, to know more about the numbers of diabetes. The Portuguese Diabetes Association with the Portuguese Diabetes Society, we published every year the numbers of diabetes in Portugal. So it's some official information about the number of people taking care, what are their results, if there are regional difference. So it's a way that every year we, we try to promote that discussion, at least a yearly discussion on the results on diabetes. 10 years ago, we had one of the highest rates of amputations, and we published that here. And the discussion, may, it was so important that the government decided to promote different care for people with diabetes, specifically considering diabetes food treatment. And the rate of amputation has been decreasing for the last 10 years. So it's important to have those things addressed in a proper way. It's just not fighting, but having the numbers, having people informed, information, health literacy, people educated uh, and responsible citizens. It's also something that we try to fight here. Oh, wow. I am so impressed. And like knowing that the amount of amputations have gone down is absolutely amazing and commendable. Um, thank you so much for this conversation, Dr. Rapazzo. Um, if I was not interested in the idea of virtual Congress, which I already am, I definitely would be after this conversation. So again, um, we've heard a lot of insightful and useful, valuable um, information from you today. I'm sure our listeners across the world will feel the same way. Before we close, I'd like to ask you, where can our listeners find you on social media if they have any follow-up questions? Yeah, please. Uh, well, Felicia, first of all, thank you for <laughs> your nice words, kind words. And, and it was a great pleasure for me to, 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 have this, to have this talk with you. 
And people can find me here through the APDP, so either in the web page of APDP uh, or in the Facebook, all the social media, you'll find the Portuguese Diabetes Association quite easily. And I'll be glad to answer all your questions or any addressing any kind of suggestions you have. Thank you. Thank you. That's all for this episode. Thanks for listening and make sure you join us soon for a brand new episode of DTALK, Conversations in Diabetes, brought to you by the International Diabetes Federation. Thank you.